1: I look round the room and my brother and I have been pretending to be half of these guys (laughs) in the back garden a few years earlier, you know, the elder statesmen, the Edriches, Illingworth, Cowdery,
2: D'Olivera. You're listening to the Lord's Cricket Podcast with me, Will Rowe. These are the stories from the home of cricket with the people that made them. My guest on this episode of the podcast is one of the finest bowlers to ever play for England. He sits fourth in the all-time list of England's test wicket-takers, behind Jimmy Anderson, Stuart Broad and his old teammate Ian Botham. With a phenomenal haul of 325 wickets in 90 tests, three appearances on the Lord's Honours Board, a ground where he performed brilliantly and where we're sat today to record this podcast, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Bob Willis. How How are you?
1: It's great to be here and uh, great to be uh, at Lords again, as it always is. Even when
2: the ground's empty, uh, there's a special feeling coming here. Wonderful, yeah. We're sitting up in um, the—I think we're actually in the skybox today. um, Keeping you on brand, Bob. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Uh, Looking out over the ground, Um, yeah, it it is beautiful to be here. Um, uh, The first question—we're going to talk about your career today. A few of those moments at Lords—it's an amazing career with some real ups and downs. Um, What about the action? Where did that come from?
1: <laughs> well, I always thought it was a perfect bowling action till I was horrified to see myself on uh, video. But uh, I guess uh, not so much the action, but the desire to become a fast bowler was um, uh, born at school. Uh, I've never been a fan of rugby, And because I was tall, I was always put in the scrum at school. And um, there were other six-footers there who were twice as broad as me, so I got bullied around all winter on the rugby field. So the only way I could get my own back on these thugs was to (laughs) try and knock their heads off in the summer playing cricket. So, uh, well, that's my excuse for being a fast bowler anyway. (laughs)
2: Although synonymous with Warwickshire and originally Surrey, Bob Willis is actually a northerner by birth. Born in Sunderland in 1949, he spends the first six years of his life in Manchester before his father relocates to London for work.
1: Well, when he was alive, my father was a journalist. He was working for the Sunderland Echo when I was born in 1949. But six weeks later, he... uh, Got a job on the Manchester Evening Paper and we moved to Chalton-Come-Hardy, which is only really a a driver from um, uh, Old Trafford Cricket Ground. Uh, So my first experience of uh, watching cricket was at Old Trafford, watching uh, Lancashire. And uh, my love of Manchester City Football Club grew from my... uh, Six years in Manchester, I remember going to sit on the white wall behind Bert Troutman's goal in 1955-56. Uh, don't think we'd be
2: allowed to do that these days. But uh, I believe as a four-year-old you went to the 1953 Ashes Test match at Old Trafford with an uncle and, and your elder brother David? Correct,
1: that's right, yes. Um, uh, uncle Joe Wardle uh, took us along there... Um, Yes, um, it always had a, a, a you know a soft spot in my heart, Old Trafford. My my first recollections were of um, watching a Brian Statham bowl, and he became my hero. You know, fiery Fred Truman used to get all the headlines and all the publicity, but uh, if one scrutinises Brian Statham's record, it's. Uh, quite remarkable and also he didn't get himself in hot waters as often as Fred so uh, Brian should have probably played even even more test matches than he did but he was a a great servant uncomplaining uh, bowling into the wind but uh, had all the attributes for a top class performer
2: and when you got to the ground on that day, I think you did you sit behind the sight screen or something at that test match? Is well, there... yeah, we wondered, <laughs> we wondered why we had all
1: these seats to ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, they moved the sight screen into position, and we were uh, we were sitting behind it, so uh, we had to um, we had to mix with the hoi polloi and go and find another seat.
2: <laughs> it's a lovely story. Um, w- once you went down to Surrey, what was your sort of your early years in childhood like? I, I sort of read in your book that your father was quite quite a strict man.
1: Yes, a, f- a fairly uh, strict, old-fashioned uh, upbringing, but he was always very keen to um, encourage us to play sport. Uh, both my brother and I were much better at uh, soccer than rugby, and uh, uh, cricket was a Uh, passion close to my father's heart I don't think he played that much himself but he encouraged us to play he was more keen on us going to the local recreation ground where my club cricket uh, career started rather than playing in the back garden and smashing windows in the greenhouse (laughs) and the uh, dining room but um, we had an immaculate pitch in the back garden and we marched out from the greenhouse which (laughs) was the pavilion the problem was, my brother being older than me, he was always England, I had to be Australia, and um, you had to... They seemed to have a, a whole batch of left-handers, and, of course, you had to bat left-handed. <laughs> so it's probably the reason why my batting career didn't quite develop as well as my bowling career. But, no, they were they were happy times uh, at junior school. Um, I wasn't that... Uh, happy at uh, secondary school. It was a very good school, an old-fashioned grammar school in those days, RGS. It became an independent school shortly after I finished. Uh, but it was a very strict disciplinary school and you know we had to join the combined cadet force and dress up in army uniform every Friday. <laughs> Uh, so, those sort of things are uh, now happily long gone.
2: Bob attends the Royal Grammar School but doesn't make the most of it. Flunking his O levels, Bob's misery is compounded by having to resit his fifth year, something he's not keen on. But his cricket prowess is soon realised. In 1969, whilst living with school friend and now the Sky Sports football commentator Martin Tyler, the duo are based in Streatham in south-east London. It's here that Bob gets a trial at Surrey. He recalls his early days as a professional.
1: Early on, it was a pretty dramatic change, playing cricket for fun and then playing it for your living. And um, the sort of hierarchy of, surrey cricket in those days and i suspect most county clubs were the same you know you were you were seen and not heard and reported to the nets at um 10 o'clock in the morning uh, bowled at the first team till the nets came down at the oval about 20 past 11 start in those days and then you sat uh, on the balcony of the second team dressing room upstairs Willing the guys on the field to fail, <laughs> so you'd get an opportunity to show your skills in the first team. And it was a case of uh, if you were summoned by the coach, uh, the autocratic Arthur McIntyre, to go down to the first team dressing room, one had to knock on the door and put one's blazer on and all this sort of yeah. stuff. It was uh, it was quite a it was quite a it was quite a tough upbringing.
2: It's interesting you talk about the kind of hierarchical nature of Surrey. I, I chatted to Graham Foxy Fowler and he describes Lancashire in almost identical terms. It's all knocking on the door and he hated it. Um, your Surrey career began, but after six weeks, you almost quit. You were so disillusioned. Was that just, were you just finding your feet or was it just a young man who was just a bit...
1: Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I just... it wasn't, it wasn't uh, particularly enjoyable. Um, you know, uh, you had to go off and score for the club and ground team. And, um, you know, second 11 matches, um, you know, they were spread all over the country. Uh, but there was, uh, you know, very much a senior-junior system. And there was always a scramble for the senior players, even in the second team, to take their motor car on away trips, so they'd get their petrol money and <laughs> um, drive at forty miles an hour to save petrol and all that sort of thing and um, um even though I was already six foot six by this time, you had to travel in the back seat of the car I remember. Uh, two occasions. One, I was in Stuart Story's Renault 5 in the back seat after bowling all day down at Swansea, you know, five-hour drive back to London in those days. And I got cramp, and Pat Pocock, who was in the front seat, had to drag me out of the car (laughs) sideways to relieve this cramp. And another occasion... We were going from the Oval to Scarborough, and Eunice Ahmed uh, took his girlfriend up to Scarborough for this match. And I travelled up with him and his girlfriend in a Hillman Imp, and I was in the back seat of the Hillman Imp for about five and a half hours from London to Scarborough. So that's the way things were in those days.
2: And then you had this, this call-up to England at the age of just 21, Um, Railingworth, I guess it was Ray did he make the call or did it where did it come from but it was to go out to Australia to join the Ashes party yes Alan
1: Ward the Derbyshire quickie uh, got injured a a very serious shin injury and he uh, he had to come home Um, and I was coaching with Chris Waller who was a good friend and a second 11 colleague at Surrey went on to have a more successful career at Sussex. He used to drive me to the Oval from uh, Stoke Dabon in Surrey every morning. And um, we were coaching at the Crystal Palace Recreation Centre and the uh, the director came and said, oh, Bob, there's a phone call for you. And you always think uh, uh, the worst when you say (laughs) there's a phone call at work. Um, Anyway, I went to... His office, and it was Billy Griffith, who was then secretary of MCC, saying that um, the MCC management wanted to go out and join the touring party in Australia. But I don't think Ray Lingworth had seen me bowl in the flesh, and it was certainly John Edrich who persuaded Illy to uh, take me out as replacement for Alan Ward. Um, they wanted to fight fire with fire and they were keen to have a Pace Bowl. I mean, the likes of both Arnold and Jackman at Surrey were far more accomplished bowlers than I were, but uh, Pace was the order of the day in Australia. And so uh, off I went. My dad quickly bought me a suit in uh, Simpsons of Piccadilly and I got a, a cricket case... Sign written by uh, the guy who uh, did all the sign writing at the Oval. And off I went on a five-stop journey on a Boeing 707 to uh, Brisbane.
2: Five stops? Calling (laughs)
1: at... Well, I can't remember them all. Certainly Amsterdam, Moscow, Beirut and Darwin. I can't remember what the fifth stop was, but... uh, um, That was pretty shattering, but uh, it was all like a fairy tale because I got to Brisbane and I met the guys after the day's play of the state match against Queensland. And um, I looked round the room and my brother and I had been pretending to be half of these guys (laughs) in the back garden a few years earlier. You know, the elder statesmen, the Edriches, Illingworth, Cowdery, D'Olivera. Uh, so uh, it was surreal from that point of view. And, um, you know, I thought I was just going to be a drinks waiter and play in the upcountry matches in the second round of state matches. Uh, and that looked like being the case until uh, Ken Shuttleworth, the Lancashire paceman, got injured. And I was thrown in at the deep end uh, during the uh, fourth test...
2: At uh, Sydney, how did you sleep the night before that test <laughs> did you
1: <laughs> well I, well I think nerves are a good thing about uh, playing international sport uh, but yeah, I was extremely nervous um, until I actually walked on to the ground to bat um, but uh, no it was a it was a huge thrill I managed to put on some runs for the last wicket I think and we managed to win the test match thanks to John Snow uh, bowling Australia out Um, so John became uh, a little bit of a mentor and guru to me um, insomuch that he saved his best for test matches and Perhaps Sir Warwickshire's members thought that I saved my best for test matches as well during my career, but uh, no, it was a big thrill to play in that, and then to play the rest of the series. There were in fact seven test matches, one was washed out, so Mm. I played in four of the completed six matches, and we won both the test matches at Sydney, and won the Ashes back after 12 years,
2: so... It was really uh, boys' own annual stuff. Absolutely. What a, what a way to um, start a test career. That, that test match at Sydney, um, you went wicketless in the first innings, but I think it's the second innings. Ian Redpath caught John Edridge, Bob Willis. So that's that's where it all begins. The first of your many test wickets.
1: Well, in fact, I think you'll find that my first test wicket was Ashley Mallet uh. caught Caught not hooking off uh, off me. Um so we better do that bit
2: again. Um Are you sure it's not I definitely checked that and I'm pretty sure you took you got red path. Wow <laughs>
1: <laughs> We'll have to have a look. But um no I'm I'm pretty con I I thought I only got one wicket in the match and you, it was Ashley Mallet. I thought you got one wicket in the match and it was Red Path. <laughs> <Sorry>. Well <laughs> Um, we'll check it up. Anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> if we find out that it was <laughs> Ashley Mallett... Um, Ashley Mallett went for a, a hook shot and gloved the ball through to Alan Knott. I didn't make much of a contribution with the ball. I didn't have to with
2: uh, John Snow rolling them over. <laughs> Well, Bob's right. Ashley Mallett is his first test wicket. I stand corrected. It's a series not without controversy and a baptism of fire for a young Bob who learns exactly what Ashes cricket's all about. The most infamous incident comes at the SCG when John Snow's manhandled by spectators on the boundary after he'd hit Terry Jenner with a bouncer. But England win back the Ashes after 12 years, 2-0. Bob returns to England, but soon has a decision to make. He's struggling to get into the Surrey first team, competing with fellow paceman Robin Jackman.
1: Both Robin Jackman and I were playing in a Surrey 2nd eleven game up in north London somewhere, Hornsey from memory. And I had a chat with Robin and said, well, look, one of us has got to move on here uh, because, you know, we're not going to... our careers aren't going to progress... Uh, being in and out the first team and playing a lot of cricket in Surrey second eleven so because I was younger than Robin and he was um, further on the road to the uh, sort of promised land of a cricketer's benefit I decided to leave Surrey in uh, 71 and uh, move up to Warwickshire. I think 12 of the 17 counties, as they were in those days, uh, uh, were interested in my services. Um, but probably the fact that Bernard Thomas, the Warwickshire physio, was the England physio at the time, and um, uh, I went up and was very impressed with the setup at Edgbast, and I decided to. I decided to go there. Um, sorry, weren't happy about me leaving.
2: Was it and... a bit bitter? Well, it
1: was, yes. I mean, um, uh, they objected to my registration. I mean, it would never happen in these days. But I remember Bob Cotton was leaving Northamptonshire for Hampshire and I was leaving sorry, for Warwickshire, the winter of 1971. We both had to spend a period of qualification in the second eleven at our new counties Uh, I think he till about mid-June and I wasn't allowed to play for Warwickshire till the 1st of July Uh, so that wasn't a brilliant start to my uh, Warwickshire career because I'd gone from the Surrey second eleven to the Warwickshire second (laughs) eleven
2: Well you're thinking Uh, what have I done? (laughs)
1: Yeah Uh, and then although I I you know alec bedser who was um one of the princi- principal selectors throughout most of my career he hadn't forgotten about me and i played i think in the mcc versus australians match in 72 and then the following summer um i got back into the england side in the last test match at Lords um, against a very strong West Indies side, uh, I think I managed four wickets in the yeah. only innings. But uh, Can I, Sobers, and Julian all got centuries.
3: That's it. <clears throat> Sobers guarded by the England side there is a modest invasion of the turf. 900 then for
1: Gary Sobers his 26th Test match hundred. Did they get 652 for eight or something? They did,
2: yeah. They, <laughs> it was about that. Um, they West Indies won by an innings and 226 runs. You did take four wickets. Um, it was Cigarfield Sobers' final Test match hundred. So I guess. Sitting here now in uh, 2018, at least you you had the honour of being on the pitch to witness that. Maybe not at the time, you didn't feel the same way, but...
1: Well, yeah, it was ironic, because I was good mates with uh, Gary. I remember when we toured the West Indies the following winter that he actually met us at Barbados Airport and welcomed us to uh, the West Indies. And uh, his his last test innings at Kensington Oval I got him out for a duck but unfortunately by that time Lawrence Road scored 300 and there was nearly another 700 <laughs> on the board for the West Indies um, but uh, yeah um, that was the demise of Raymond Illingworth as uh, England captain and player uh, Mike Denness was named captain for the uh, tour of uh, the West Indies much to the chagrin of boycott and Greg who uh, had their eyes on the job but um, yeah I mean it wasn't it wasn't pleasant chasing leather against uh, the likes of Can I Sobers and Julian
3: Another well, beautiful straight drive, big Fletcher goes through for four, brings up the 400, what a wonderful shot from Gary Sobers packed house here now, really getting full value for money Be Bob Willis, who has four wickets, and another four runs. A very elegant, gentle stroke, really, from
1: Sobers. It was great. uh, It was great watching Sobers bat. I'd first come across Gary playing for Nottinghamshire, um, uh, for Surrey in 1969, and I um, that was my first. No, I think it was one of my early county championship matches. I think they were about 16 for four, and I'd taken all four wickets when Gary came in and smashed me straight back over my head in the first (laughs) over and went on to make a big score. So, yeah, Sobers has got a lasting mark on my career.
0: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: During The Ashes down under in 1975, Bob suffers a knee injury which forces him to return home. He struggles at Warwickshire that season, has operations on both knees, the scars you can still see to this day. So Bob has to change something, his training regime, and also, at a later date, he turns to hypnotherapy. Tony
1: Gregg had taken over um, uh, the captaincy of England in 1975, and we went to India under Greggy in 76-7 which culminated on a a 10-day stop in uh, Sri Lanka and then on to Perth and eventually Melbourne for the centenary test, which was an extraordinary cricket match, Um, with the result being exactly the same as it had been in 1877, the Aussies winning, I think, by 45 runs. But Tony had looked after me throughout that tour... Um, you know, I didn't play in the matches in India between the tests, and um, uh, you know, kept me in cotton wool, and we won amazingly three one in um, in India. But both both first innings in the centenary test were very low scoring. Uh, I think we didn't make a hundred, and they only made about a hundred and ten or something. And then there were huge second innings when the pitch flattened out and I basically ran out of steam Mm. and after the match um, I was having a break in Sydney and um, uh, we're having a barbecue at uh, a hypnotherapist's house I hadn't had hypnotherapy by then but uh, we're having a barbecue at this guy's house and Greg he got really stuck into me he said oh, you know you let me down in Melbourne I'd looked after you a whole tour you ran out of puff um, you know you've got to get yourself uh, much fitter and stronger if you want to you know play regularly for England and get to the top of the tree and he said something very poignantly there are going to be huge rewards for cricketers in the near future That went flying over my head. I didn't know what he was talking about, of course. But it was a precursor to World Series cricket was was being planned at that very time after the centenary test. So it was then that I started hypnotherapy with uh, Dr Arthur Jackson in Sydney. And um, he gave me this programme of long, slow distance running so I came back and uh, started this training regime, which was to run five miles in 35 minutes. It doesn't sound very fast. It's only seven minutes a mile. But doing that on a daily basis certainly built up your stamina. And that was my, that was my modus operandi. I never was one for pumping iron in the gym or bowling lengthy periods in the nets. That was my religion, if you like, was long, slow distance running to get fit for fast bowling. And um, obviously Arthur was in Sydney, so he sent me cassette tapes of hypnosis to prepare for matches and relax and visualise success on the cricket field. And because I've always been an insomniac, uh, relaxing tapes to help me sleep and that transformed my career i mean if you look at my appearances for england between 7071 and the centenary test match they were pretty intermittent in the side out of the side uh, injuries here injuries there and then after 77 i had a long period injury free And uh, apart from Imran Khan ricking my neck and uh, unfortunately missing the 79 World Cup final with a a shoulder injury, um, I hardly missed any matches for England. And so I've got uh, a lot to thank Dr. Arthur Jackson for. And hypnotherapy. I mean, nowadays it would be taken as read that it would be... uh, an important part of um, modern care of a player, but of course then it was sort of hocus-pocus
2: witchcraft. Very much ahead of his time in terms of the mental side of the game and staying physically fit by not over-bowling himself, Bob enjoys consistent success for the remainder of his England career. But there was one time when his focus did let him down – when he went out to face Imran Khan without a bat.
1: Bob Taylor (laughs) and I were batting at Edgbaston against Pakistan in uh, 1982 and we'd put on a uh, a very important last-wicket partnership and tea had been delayed because of this partnership by half an hour. And we went in for tea, still nine wickets down. And apart from my trusty... Duncan Fernley Run Reaper cricket bat I never had any batting kit of my own I borrowed everything um, uh, thigh pad box pads uh, helmet and I came off um, and uh, my batting gloves were I think they were Chris tavare's batting gloves actually were a bit sweaty and I asked Ian Botham if I could borrow his batting gloves and he said yes but make sure you wear the inner gloves because i don't want you getting the palms of my batting gloves all sweaty so i said oh yeah that's fine mate so anyway after tea interval uh, after the tea interval waiting to go out and face more Imran Khan bouncers i put the inner gloves on and tucked the batting gloves under my arm and marched out to the middle with no cricket bat. I think it was one of the most amusing moments in the BBC television commentary box of all time when the captain uh, was out in the middle without the willow.
2: Let's talk about 1977 at Lourdes. Um, It was against Australia... Mike Brearley was captain um World Series cricket had been announced uh, Tony Gregg had been sacked by captain uh, as the captain of England it's quite a turbulent time for the game but just talking about then about um your training regime this this spell of bowling that you produced to take 7 for 78 was a wonderful spell of bowling to to bowl them out uh, when they were they were doing very well um up until that point I think they were 238 for 3 And then it was that kind of classic Willis spell of bowling where you you got in the zone.
1: Yes, um, uh, the zone, or my cocoon as it's called, I suppose um, most famously in 1981, but certainly in 77 as well. Yes, it was a a period of turmoil in the game. Um, You know, the, uh, the World Series cricket story had broken... Um, at the start of the Australian tour and the Australian side was split between players who had signed up for Kerry Packer and those that hadn't so they weren't a very happy bunch at all and didn't play to their potential during that series and really had taken over as captain Our, our Packer representatives in the side were still selected for England then and later in the summer, uh, Bob Woolmer and Derek Randall and myself, and presumably uh, um, Ian Botham as well, were invited to join World Series Cricket. So yeah, it, it was a it was a, certainly a a, uh, a difficult time in cricket, and it got worse uh, after the first season of World Series Cricket when. Um, After the court judgment, players were allowed to play county cricket, but not for England, which caused a lot of friction in dressing rooms around the country. Uh, But going back to the Lord's Test match, um, yeah, I suppose, um, in a way, a little bit like um, Stuart Broad in more modern times, um, getting in the zone or having a spell of bowling where you're inspired where all the catches are taken the batsmen don't play and miss they edge the ball and uh, wickets tumble um, you know it, it, it isn't luck it is the sign of a of a top class performer unfortunately he um, couldn't turn it on at will and uh, it very
2: rarely seemed to happen against the West Indies in those days <laughs> But it did happen here and it it happened in that match against the Aussies and and regardless of the turmoil, beating the Aussies, winning here at the Home of Cricket, wonderful and also it came from the nursery end, your unpreferred end so to speak, but you got in that zone.
3: It's out and it's a loose stroke from Greg Chappell, one of the few he's played and Chris Old is the man taking the catch. And he's gone. one of the worst balls at Bob Willis' bowled here all day long very wide, very short Sergeant going for the square cut just getting a faint deflection through to wicketkeeper Alan Knott so Sergeant goes for 81 the fourth wicket is down for 238 and my word, he's caught it it seemed initially that flicked off the pad it was off the bat Walters goes Willis picks up another wicket well that's got to be close Yes, indeed. I'd have thought that was absolutely plumb. Good delivery from Bob Willis. The fourth wicket with his second new ball. Marsh is out. That's an edge, and it's taken this time. So a goes, walker go, snapped up by Alan Knott off the bowling of Bob Willis. That's short. It's a catch. And in the very safe hands there of Alan Elam. And the ball need to conjecture about that because Bob Willis has turned in his best ever bowling performance in a test match. He now has taken seven for 78.
2: Greg Chappell, Chris Sargent, Doug Walters, they'd, they'd all scored at 50s. You got rid of those three and then you just ripped through Rob Marsh, Max Walker, Kerry O'Keefe and then Jeff Thompson, Tomo. Clean bowled him. Seven for, thank you very much.
1: Yeah, um, well... You know, they 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 had a mixture, as I say, of World Series cricket players. They had a pretty fine batting line-up, probably a better batting line-up than a uh, bowling line-up on that tour. But, uh, you know, the recent epidemic of drop-catches in test matches, um, apart from early in the 81 series, we had very good close-to-the-wicket throughout my career in my memory you know when Brealy was captain or Greg was captain they were in the slips taking good catches and both of them came along he was probably one of the best slip fielders of all time and even the quicker bowlers the likes of Mike Hendrick and Chris Old even Graham Dilley when his career started were all capable fielders uh, close to the wicket and um you know, later on, Mike Gatting at short leg and close to the wicket, very brave uh, short leg fielder, took some brilliant catches as well. So um, we all have catches dropped off us, but uh, not quite as many as I think Anderson and
2: Broad suffer these days. There was Max Walker that was caught by Not. That was a great ball. You used the slope perfectly there. It just held its line, just went away a bit down the slope, edge and then... Alan Knott behind the stumps he's not going to drop any <laughs> no
1: uh, I, I was so fortunate through most of my career to have uh, Alan Knott behind the stumps and then Bob Taylor when he um, went off to World Series cricket um, those were two fantastic keepers and Alan Knott uh, probably uh, the best wicket keeper of all time anywhere I think and and um, I remember um, on that 70-71 tour of Australia, he uh, missed a chance off Illy's bowling. And uh, Illy, in typical Yorkshire style, said, well, at least we know you're human now, because that was the only mistake I can uh, remember in making. And, of course, when Underwood was bowling, their relationship, which had been bred from... Uh, down at Kent uh, it was almost mesmeric what uh, they could do as a partnership so uh, yeah it was no surprise when Notty took brilliant catches and people forget that he also averaged over 30 uh, with the bat and scored some very important runs for England so he was was a, a
2: fantastic colleague to have in the team. And, and that Test match, you I mean, it goes on to be a draw. At one point, you looked like you could win it. But on a personal note, um, the honours boards didn't exist then, obviously, the physical ones. But to take a five-wicket haul at Lords, the home of cricket, against Australia, it must have been a very proud moment for you.
1: Yes. I mean, uh, success in any Ashes matches. is, um, you know, cricket's this unique game, isn't it? It's a... Uh, it's a game played by individuals in a in a team environment, and although uh, one's uh, lying if you say you don't bother about personal statistics, of course you do. But um, hopefully, the uh, the team ethic was always more important than uh, personal achievements. But yeah, I mean to 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 walk off the field at the home of cricket with the crowd standing to you um, is a moment that uh, one always remembers and um, Lords is unique in cricket that you um, you know you very much walk through the crowd and the members uh, in the long room on the way back to the revered dressing room so yeah uh, a very very special moment indeed
2: (laughs) In 1982, a year after his famous heroics at Headingley, Bob finds himself captain of England. Mike Brearley's retired, and it's only a year since Ian Botham was sacked. His first test is at Lords against India, which he wins whilst taking 6 for 101 in the second innings. So was Bob expecting the job? I certainly wasn't, no. um, I had a
1: eye-watering offer to captain the South African brewery's side um, um, in early 82 Um, it was £60,000 to captain the side for a month's work in South Africa imagine what £60,000 in 1982 was for a month's work Uh, But I knew that the players who went would be banned from playing for England. And my whole uh, raison d'etre in cricketing life was to play for England. You know, pulling on the England sweater, looking down at the crown and three lions was what I was uh, on this earth to do as far as I was concerned. So with Warwickshire's help... uh, they gave me an extended contract and said they would pay me even if I was out of the game injured. I managed to resist the uh, Krugerrands to go to South Africa. And of course, as 15 players went to South Africa, and Peter May didn't want Keith Fletcher to continue as captain, both of them had been as, gone as captain, given the job too early and successive series against the West Indies doesn't help anybody in their captaincy career by pressure of el- elimination the uh, arrow spun round to me but yeah it was still a great surprise but uh, an, incredible, uh, an incredible honour to do that job albeit with uh, basically half a cricket team for the two years I was in charge
2: yeah that team that um, the England side was uh, here at Lords, Jeff Cook, Tavare, Boycott, Lamb, Gower, Botham, Randall, Pringle, Edmonds, Taylor, Allett, and Willis. That was the side that you walked out with against India. Um, did you find as a captain it was, it was hard to know when not to bowl yourself or when to bowl yourself? Especially, you know, fast bowlers don't traditionally make captains. No, uh, there weren't many exceptions. I suppose um,
1: Imran Khan would have been the most successful captain fast bowler I don't think England had had one since Gubby Allen back in the 30s no it's not an easy job as a fast bowler Um, but I don't think I would ever have been accused of bowling myself too much or too little when I was captain Uh, the most thing was when one was weary in the last session was thinking about all the other bowlers and field placings and and quite often, I'd get back to the end of my ridiculous 41 pace run-up and turn round and find that Ian had moved a fielder here and there. But I was too weary to admonish him or change the field. So, uh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't an easy job. Uh, I won all three series at home when I was captain. Um uh, India and Pakistan in '82 and New Zealand in '83, uh, but didn't manage to win uh, away from home. Unfortunately, no, I was not taking to captaincy like a duck to water, but um, um, tried tried to be innovative as a captain. I gave uh, uh, Derek Pringle and Neil Foster an early opportunity.
2: There's two promising young cricketers being in the zone, or you're kind of the the Bob Willis cocoon. I mean, you you, you talked about it there. Forty one pace run up, and Ian's moving the field. Like, how how did you deal with that as a captain? Because as a player, you did get in these almost these trance like phases when you're bowling, but you clearly can't do that as a captain. You have to be concentrating on the game.
1: Yeah, it was it was it was quite difficult. Um, you know, uh, Ian, Ian's got a tremendous cricket brain and uh, was probably, as I was, a better, um, you know, uh, lieutenant, if you like, or vice-captain type of figure than uh, a captain. Um, and he was, he was a great help to me in terms of uh, tactics, and as he always did boldest his heart out for any captain he was uh, playing under. But I didn't quite have the man management skills of a Brealy to get the best out of him away from home. I think he was finding uh, touring difficult after he became this sort of superstar figure after the 81 Ashes. And um, he he was more sort of rock star than sportsman and uh, found it difficult to go anywhere in public without being pestered.
2: And just to come on to your retirement, um, 1984, um, you were taken apart by Michael Holding, the the West Indies well, bowler. Um that in the end brought to the end a fantastic England career you retired 325 test wickets at the time top of the tree Um, Ian went past you as did James Anderson and Stuart Broad in more recent years Um, in 1984 was it an easy decision to say enough's enough um, at that time
1: well it was really my health which uh, made the decision for me I I was captain in Pakistan in uh, early '84, and I contracted hepatitis there and had to come home early from the tour. And after various uh, tests at hospitals for tropical diseases, um, it was found that uh, these symptoms kept recurring when I got. Uh, exhausted bowling and they kept recurring and I remember test match at Headingley Um, although I bowled pretty well I I think I was quoted as saying Mikey Holding hit me places in Headingley that only the Yorkshire Ripper had visited before (laughs) Uh, so it was a fairly ignominious test match exit and then uh, my last ever, my last ever uh, match was uh, at Lords in the uh, One Day Cup final against Lancashire, where these symptoms again recurred, and uh, again I lost the toss in a One Day final, and we got uh, smashed by Lancashire, and that was the end of me. Uh, July. 84. So it wasn't a particularly happy ending, but I decided after the illness in Pakistan that 84 was going to be my last
2: season. And how do you feel now, sort of sitting back, looking at your career? Um, I guess immensely proud of what you achieved. Very proud,
1: particularly the second half of my career and having the privilege to play with the players that I did. I wish I'd uh, got serious about uh, fitness and uh, mental preparation earlier in my career. There were certainly a few wasted years um, in the uh, early 70s. So regrets about that, but none about uh, representing England and um, winning the hearts of the England cricket supporters for long periods of time. And, um, you know, captaining England in whatever circumstances is a huge privilege and it is l- like sporting uh, royalty and one has to learn to how to behave and how con- to conduct oneself as the England captain because it is a very special position and certainly... Uh, led to great privileges after I retired. You know, one isn't invited into the uh, BBC commentary box as it was in those days if one's just a run-of-the-mill county performer. But being an England captain almost gave you a passport into a
2: career in broadcasting afterwards. And is there any one moment that you could pick out that you really cherish now?
1: Well, clearly the um, uh, Headingley 1981 Test match was, uh, you know, boys' comic uh, stuff, really. Roy of the Rovers, call it what you will. But turning that match round and then Ian turning that series round after a dismal start to 1981 when... uh, Kenny Barrington died on the West Indies tour. I'd come home injured from that tour. England's demise... Sorry, Ian's demise as England captain. And then really coming back and turning things round. 81, like for Ian, was probably the highlight of my career. And Ray Bright's middle stump
2: going out at Headingley. Probably the lasting memory. Yeah, well, we it's interesting to sit down and talk to you and not talk about Headingley 81 but for listeners we have recorded a podcast on the ashes so you can listen to Bob discuss his memories of that I just wanted to finish on um, could you ever dream as a young schoolboy that one day that you would surpass Brian Statham's record well 252 wickets he took did the did that disgruntled teenager down in in Surrey think that would happen one day?
1: No, not really. I mean, I thought I was uh, going to be probably an also-ran and a Um, nearly-man, you know, concentrating more on Bob Dylan's music than my uh, German geography and English homework, and, um, you know, not making the most of my uh, early professional career, Uh, but then having the huge boost of playing for England at an early age but no when I was uh, running home from the local recreation ground uh, in a bad temper after my uh, brother had bowled me out first ball I probably wasn't thinking I was going to play 90 test matches for England and captain them on 18 occasions
2: Well, Bob, it's um, been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you very much uh, for your time and coming on the Lord's Cricket Podcast. It's always great to be at Lord's. You've been listening to the Lord's Cricket Podcast, the stories from the home of cricket with the people that made them. That was Bob Willis, one of England's greatest fast bowlers ever. Thanks again to Bob for taking the time to record that podcast. We did it in the J P. Morgan Media Center, overlooking the ground where where he was a fantastic bowler. It was really nice to sit down with bob he 's a character um, that 's sort of known for being a bit dry and almost playing the pantomime villain when he 's on that sky cricket debate program. But he does have I think um, a great sense of humor and he 's also quite introspective at times, um, especially towards the end there where we discussed his captaincy. I don't think he was a bad captain per se, but as he says, he was hampered by the Packer affair. He didn't have the strongest England side. And also, he wasn't expecting the job. And he was also a quick bowler. You know, that thing about 41-yard run-up. And then Ian Botham's changing the field behind his back. But yeah, um, a great character. And also way ahead of his times in terms of going on those long runs and, you know, the, the hypnotherapy stuff, which, as he said at the time, people thought was kind of hocus-pocus. But now, you know, every team, every cricket team, every sports team has guys that look after the mental aspect of the game for, for the players, which is so, so important. So, yeah. And um, also, I'd just like to say, if you were a bit bemused as to why we didn't discuss the Ashes in 1981, um, it's because of, we've already done a podcast uh, with Bob Willis, Um, on that so I've put the link to that in the liner notes of this podcast so if you want to have a listen to that it's there it's um, myself um, Phil Walker from Wisden and Bob and we sit down in the long room at Lord's and discuss the summer of 81 so there's a whole special on that summer well that's it for this mini series of the podcast Um, I hope you've enjoyed the episodes with Bob Willis just now Angus Fraser Steve Kirby and Mike Brearley All the episodes from the series and previous series are available to listen to. So please do go back and check them out wherever you consume your podcasts. I've now sat down with 12 cricketers and chatted through their careers and famous moments at Lords. Um, this podcast is from Lord's Cricket Ground. It's hosted on the ACAST podcast platform. It's recorded, edited and produced by myself, Will Rowe. Um, I'd like to give a special thanks to my colleagues Neil Robinson and Rob Curphy in the MCC Library for all their help with the research. Um, they're always great guys to go to. Um, If I need to query a date or an incident that happened, Neil and Rob are always there to double-check. And uh, they also lend me plenty of books, uh, which I squirrel away into. Um, I'd also like to thank Nick Stroudley, Danish Roberts and Greg Stubley, who all work in MCC's digital content. Um, They're the guys that make sure this all gets out to you on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever they post it, and make sure that the podcast is as widely available as possible. Um, if you do enjoy the podcast, please do leave a review or give it a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks, as ever, to the BBC and ECB for the commentary clips. And remember, you can reach out to the show via Twitter, at Homer Crickets, the handle, or to me personally on at Will Road 2. Uh, please keep it nice. Um, there's also an email address, podcast at podcast.mcc.org.uk. So if you want to send anything in there, we'll have a read of it. So do get in touch. And once again, thank you.